Thanks, Mel. Thanks, man. You clapped too early. It's, uh, it might be an atrocious sermon, and then you, you amen too, too soon. It's a premature amen. I know you will. I'll wait for the text to come through. <clears throat> Any issues you have, please send them to the leaders of the church. I'm not one of them. They will filter through all the garbage and get through the good stuff, right? Um, let me just open my Bible. I've bought notebooks today, so I don't need to worry about trying to go between my notes and my, uh, and my Bible. Um, just, I want to talk to you about a subject today. When I mention it again, I, it's, it's going to be probably something that's going to shock people. Um, the thing I feel to do always is to, is to bring anything that tarnishes the nature and character of God to nothing and to give good revelation of, of who God actually truly is in his nature and character. Um, even if some of those teachings are sentimental, which we've held to for so long. Um, can we turn that down a little bit, please? I know everyone says it every week. I think we should probably just set it on low. <laughs> it's real bright, especially through glasses. Um, we need to redeem the nature of God. And, and some teachings that are sentimental, which I myself have taught in the past, I've looked back as I've matured and as I've read Scripture and as I've studied further. And um, I've actually gone, geez, that teaching that you did, Brad, five, ten years ago is not, not entirely correct, you know. Um, and I'd, I'd even, some of the stuff I'd correct myself in. Um, today is one of those. Um, what I'm about to speak on, I myself taught and came to the revelation that what I was teaching probably wasn't bringing the best, of, uh, the best out in God's nature and character and the truth about who he is. That is this. Was the wrath of God satisfied on Jesus at the cross? And the answer in popular teaching is yes, it was. You know, the, the wrath of God was satisfied on Jesus at the cross. Um, I want to say to you today that that actually is not true. Um, the wrath of God was not satisfied on Jesus at the cross. Um, there's even a popular song with that line. The wrath, we've, we've actually sung it in this church. The wrath of God, you know, on that day, on the cross or something, the wrath of God was satisfied, something to, those, to that effect. And we normally sing that with gusto, you know what I mean? I always hear people's voices go up to a different level when they sing that because it's almost like a victory cry. But it's actually not. It's actually a false statement. Um, how can you say that, Brad? Well, the reality is this. There's not a single scripture in the whole of the Bible from, from the front cover to the back cover that actually gives any truth to that. There's nothing that recognizes that in the text. So where do we get that from? How can we have taught, how can we have taught that and scholars and preachers and ministers teach that when there's actually no biblical evidence for it? That's quite frightening, right? So we'll go through a few, few scriptures and we'll hopefully come out the end with a better understanding of the nature and character of God. Um, let's go to Romans chapter 1 to start with. Romans chapter 1. Our Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and the natural birth, and was declared to be the son of God in power 
according to the spirit of holiness, that's his rebirth, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now I'm reading that and I'm going, I think I may have got the wrong text there. I may have supposed to be probably 15. Let me just read that. Anyway, it's good text. Let me see where I went wrong, gentlemen and ladies. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. Romans 5 verse 9. Sorry about that. It's way off. I need to probably get new glasses again. Sorry, Romans 5. Let's go there. Sorry. I was taking down a rabbit trail. Therefore, let's read from verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For who will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So if Paul taught, and Paul was one of the top theologians of his time, one of the greatest scholars of the, of the Torah, um, who had had these heavenly encounters with Jesus, who became quite a phenomenal apostle um, in the earth. And much of the New Testament is Paul himself, it was Paul's writings, right? If Paul believed in his theology that that the wrath of God was satisfied on Jesus, why would he say over here, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? So it doesn't make sense to understand that the wrath of God has been satisfied, yet there is still a wrath of God. Okay, And I've heard theologians do some major gymnastics that, that is not scriptural to try and back up that claim. I can see people getting nervous by the statement I've made and the fact that I'm teaching against what common belief is, and that's okay. Um, Jesus did exactly the same thing, and they killed him for it. But truth is truth. And if we want to endeavor to find truth, then some of the things that we've thought to be truth, even though they're sentimental, need to be laid to rest. Okay, Our searching is for truth, is to actually live in the reality of truth. Go with me to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, should I say 1 Thessalonians, 
chapter 1. From verse 2, let's read. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness in hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's a whole another sermon. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Wow. It's an interesting text right there. Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. So you might be asking, why is it so important? Surely, you know, we are saved from the wrath and that, you know, there is no wrath for us. The truth of the matter is, yes, we are saved from the coming wrath of God. However, the teaching that I'm addressing today as an error is a teaching that diminishes the nature and character of God um, and that needs to be sorted out. The, the issue is not about are we as born-again believers saved from the wrath of God or not. The issue is this. Was God pouring out his wrath upon his son at the cross all in the name of love? Because I think to say yes he did is to diminish who he is as a loving father. Now, I was talking to a Christian the other day and I, and, I, and I portrayed this scenario for him. I said, listen to this. This is the issue of the teaching. We teach this. God was infinitely patient. God is infinitely kind. God is infinitely loving. In fact, he is in his nature love. Okay? He is long-suffering, as the scriptures tell us. Yet God, a patient and infinitely, eternally patient God, at some point in time, became so impatient with our shortcomings that he decided to put the punishment upon his only beloved son to pour out his wrath so that he can be appeased by that sacrifice and then so, therefore, sit down and be calm again. Now, that doesn't sound like the nature and character of the God that we see through the texts. And I talked to this Christian guy about it, and he said to me, I've never heard it taught like that before. I've never really heard that said, so it's not an issue for me. And I said, that's interesting, because most unsaved people that I speak to actually argue with me on that point. They go, you tell me, you preach about a loving God, but how can a loving God pour out wrath upon his own son for the sake of, of, of his love for others. So in one sense, he's, he's wrathful towards one in order to be patient towards another. And I, 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 and I remember on many occasions trying to use the word love to explain this schizophrenic behavior in, in, in an eternally patient God. 
And I, and I came short time and time again because a lot of them will walk away going, I didn't understand that. I don't understand how you can actually reconcile that in God. How you can reconcile that he's patient, loving, kind, yet at the same time he's run out of patience, love, and kindness towards his son, so he's poured out his wrath upon him, and now God's appeased. And that teaching ultimately comes from the fact that in the day of Jesus, there were foreign gods who required appeasement. Pagan gods required appeasement. Virgin sacrifices, the sacrifice of children, the sacrifice of animals would come there to appease a God who was, at, who was angry and then needed to be appeased for a time and then needed to be, have more sacrifices in order to be appeased for a time. And we get that word from the word propitiation, which is in our texts. The word propitiation in the, in the, in the dictionary says this, the act of propitiating is to appease a God, spirit, or person. We have the text which says that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. He was the appeasement of he was the appeasement to a God for our sin. Now there's a debate that's going on among scholars where they are saying that the word translated out of the Greek, which is the word Hilasmos. The word helasmos is being translated as propitiation. But, that, but some scholars are saying that that word helasmos should actually be translated as expiation, not propitiation. So I'm going to read to you the two different meanings of propitiation and then expiation. And you tell me which one you think fits more perfectly into the understanding of who we know God to be. Propitiation, the act of appeasing a God, spirit, or person. Expiation, the act of making amends for or reparation for the guilt or the wrongdoing to atone for somebody. Wow. Isn't that interesting? That some, some human beings sitting there decided that what we'll do is we'll translate that word, helasmos, through our understanding of who we believe God to be and what happened into the word propitiation. But there are scriptures, the RSV is one of those, that, that, that actually translates it as expiation. The act of making amends. See, I got a problem when I started reading and I started looking at propitiation and I had a friend of mine that really sparked off this journey for me of, of understanding and, and studying more around this, this topic. And he's a good friend of mine. He's, he is a born-again believer. He's a born-again believer because, because I can witness to the fact that he is based on his confession of who Jesus was, who, uh, that Jesus died, and, and, and that he rose again, ascended, and that he will come again. And I've watched the transformation in his life. But my friend started to sway through this very word of the wrath of God was satisfied because the word propitiation has been used, and he became un a universalist. So if, for those of you who don't know what a universalist is, is that they teach that because of Jesus' sacrifice, everyone is born again. And, and the way he argues it, he goes, well, if Jesus was the propitiation, he was the appeasement of of God for all of mankind, then that means the wrath of God is satisfied because God doesn't need to have his wrath satisfied again. Wouldn't that be true? Would God need to have his wrath satisfied if it's already been satisfied on the perfect sacrifice? Then why would there be any wrath left to come on anything if the wrath of God is satisfied? Think about that for a second, just logically. As a human being, think about it logically. We teach that God 
found the perfect sacrifice in his son, poured out his wrath upon his son for all of mankind. Then, then later on, at some appointed time, when Jesus comes back, God will again then pour out his wrath. But then that means that Jesus was not the perfect sacrifice. It means that then on Jesus, the wrath of God could not be satisfied, surely. So from a universalist, do you understand what I'm saying? Is anyone struggling with this at the moment? Like what I'm, the, the explanation I'm trying to give. I'm really trying to break it down into simple terminology. If the wrath of God was satisfied on a perfect sacrifice, then there is no sacrifice that is better than that, that, that is going to take the satisfaction of God pouring out his wrath again. He, he, he has been fully satisfied on his wrath being poured out upon Jesus. That, that's pretty much the point of view that, that my friend as a universalist takes. Correct? But then the scripture doesn't confirm that because it says that, there's, that we will be saved from a coming wrath. So I've got a problem with that teaching because it brings, to, it brings me to a confusion in God. It doesn't, it doesn't depict a, 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 a loving, patient, kind God. It depicts a, a God who, who, who is impatient at some point in time. It depicts a more pagan view of, of, of a God, small g, which doesn't reconcile in the understanding of who we know him to be through what I see from Genesis to Revelation. And it's because of that word propitiation which has been predominantly used. You see, the scripture says this, through the Messiah or through Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Through Christ, he was reconciling the world to himself. There's no scripture that says through Christ he was satisfying his wrath. Jesus the Messiah, sorry, in Jesus the Messiah, we are removed from God's coming wrath, as we saw in the Thessalonians 1 text. Jesus, I'm going to say this to you, and it's going to sound very strange to those of you who are still struggling with it, but Jesus did not die because God's wrath was poured out upon him. Wow. Jesus did not die because God's wrath was poured out upon him. Jesus died at the hands of evil men. In actual fact, they didn't kill him. He gave his life up. He himself said, they will not take it. They do not take it from me. I give it up. No greater love is this than a man would lay down his life for his friends. That's the key here. Jesus didn't die because men killed him. He was punished at the hands of men. Do you, do you get that? God didn't punish Jesus. Human beings beat and whipped him. And if you, if we, if we go into hyper sovereignty, which is a whole other topic, we will say that God orchestrated the event because God orchestrated the fact that man and woman ate from the tree. So God is the author of sin. That's hyper sovereignty right there in a nutshell. That God orchestrated, and I've heard a friend of mine actually say this, God orchestrated man eating from the tree in the perfect garden that he had created good, a good man and woman that he created, God orchestrated the fact that they would eat from a tree, fall into sin, destruction would come to all of humanity, so that at some point he can reveal his son. Jesus, my friends, was revealed in the creation itself. He did not need to be revealed through the fall of man. God didn't need to orchestrate that in order to reveal his son. Jesus was revealed as God for all of eternity. He was the tree of life. 
So that teaching falls apart at the seams multiple times through the scriptures. But effectively, what they're saying is that God then orchestrated the fact that Jesus would die on the cross. I beg to differ with that and say this. If an, if an infinite God, an eternal God, knows all things eternally, then he would have known before the beginning of time what would take place, and he would have known through all of time and history what would have taken place, and he predicted, because he's God, and knew that that is how Jesus would die. He didn't need to orchestrate the event to know what was going to happen, and therefore, through his prophets, prophesy it, speak it out, so that when it happened, mankind would know that it was God. Mankind would know that he is God. And mankind would know that what God was doing through the, the foolishness of men. That makes sense? I know there will be a lot of questions that come out of this, and that's okay. The, if you don't have questions, then, then you're not going to learn. And you need to question. I've questioned my own theology. To get to this point, I've questioned my theology over and over again. And when we stop questioning our theology, can I tell you what happens, friends? We start to walk in absolutes and we die. Jesus never, ever taught absolutes. He created an environment in which people could converse and learn through their questions. To be a Jewish scholar, you were known how good you were as a Jewish scholar and how you were maturing by the types of questions you asked, not by the answers you gave. We, have in Western society, want an absolute. If you do this, this is the outcome. With God, it says, if you do this, these are all the different outcomes you may have. And for each of those outcomes, there's more outcomes and more outcomes. And we go, God doesn't work that way. Systematic theology says this. If God does it like that the first time, that's how God will always do it. God will never make a human being float and stick to the ceiling. Why not? Who are you, oh man, to tell God what he can and cannot do to reveal himself? You know, he can do whatever he wants to. And we just got to learn to accept it. But because we go, no, God won't do that, then, then we just decide and scholars say he won't do it. So we all go, no, well, God can't do that. Why? Because that pastor said he can't. And that pastor's written so many books and he's got a degree on, on his wall that's the size of the world map. I don't care what he's got there. The scriptures have to align with any teaching. That makes sense? Enlarge, this, this word propitiation, um, has obviously brought about this understanding of this wrath of God being satisfied. Let's look at a couple of texts where that word has been translated, and then let's look at the word propitiation and the word expiation. I know this is not so much a sermon as it is more of a, of a, teach, a teaching time, but that's okay. Sometimes we need to be taught, and sometimes we need the fluffy preaching. That's okay. You know, Whatever God wants to do, let him do. My way of teaching is this, to really just get into the text and bring about a truth so that you go, wow, actually God's better than what I thought he was. Go to 1 John. 1 John, 1 John 2. For those of you who don't know me, because I know there's a few new faces here that I haven't seen, my name is Brad. I'm not a leader in this church, um, but I enjoy preaching. I do not have a doctorate, or theology, or a, doctor, a doctorate in theology, nor any certificate that I've got from any seminary. I work as a senior project manager for a fairly um, medium-sized construction company. I have a bachelor's degree in civil engineering. Um, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a highly educated man, but I'm also not a, a dumbass. 
You know, I like to think. Being an engineer uh, and, and, and working in construction, I have learned over many, many years, 23, to, to, to think critically about everything, to, to inspect things, to, to look at detail. That's why, I, and why do you say that, Brad? I say it to qualify myself because some people look at me as I've had in the past and they go, the external doesn't sort of match why are you up there preaching like this and who do you think you are to say such things? So I like to qualify. People often come to me and think that I'm just, you know, old mate down the road there who's probably selling bags of weed out of his back, out of his, uh, back of his car. But, but, um, I like to think that, you know, I've, I've taken on a lifestyle that gives me a little bit more qualification than old mate, you know, selling weed out of the back of his vehicle there. And I'm able to at least look at the text, um, in some depth with my, with my, um, critical thinking from my education and job. Um, I've had people come to me, literally, I kid, I kid you not. When I was in Dubai, I had people come to me and say, well, what qualifies you to preach? I said, well, what qualifies you, mate? Oh, I'm this and that. And they start talking about all the degrees they've got. And I said, no, that's all right. I've, I've got this, this, and this. And they're like, oh, we didn't know that. That's because, mate, you look at what's on the outside, and then you just start making judgment calls. You know, thank God that he only judges what's on the inside. You know what I mean? Because the outside is just, is just wasting away. It's colorful, but it's just going to burn. And then I'll get a glorified new body. Chapter 2. 1 John 2. Let's look at verse 2. Sorry, I was in John. 1 John 2. Go. Okay. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And they always use the word, they always, they love to use the plural. I've always said to you, in the Greek, the word sins is actually the word sin. It's one. It's a, it's a, it's a singular. It's not a plural. And when we, the reason why that annoys me so much is when you use it as a plural, what it does is you take behavior and you say the way a human being behaves is sin. It's not. The way a human being behaves, if you're unsaved, unredeemed, is because of the fruit of sin. But as a born-again believer, the way you behave is because of the fruit of the fleshly behavior, the, the flesh. You, 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 you need to renew your mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's, 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 our, our, we are born again, therefore the nature of sin is removed, but our minds are needing to be renewed or redeemed as we live in the Spirit, which we heard last week. As you walk in the Spirit, then, then that way of living that you once lived in, is, it starts to go from you. Because you don't have the nature of sin that holds you to living in that anymore. So you can live out of it. You can walk away from that kind of way of living, from the acts of the flesh. You don't need to do that anymore. As an unredeemed person, you, you're stuck because that nature remains with you. So the natural leaning is to live in the, 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 the nature of sin, whatever it looks like. You know, there's a whole a lot of text, and I'm not teaching on that today. So, um, he is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sin of the whole world. There's my universalist friend's view right there. Brad, he's the appeasement of God, not only for our sin as, as, as those who are born again, but he's the appeasement of God for the sin of the whole world. Oh, okay. Well, now I'm struggling with my argument against my mate because of that word. But let's look at it from, from this point of view. So let's read it as a propitiation. He is the appeasement for our sin. Not for ours only, but the whole world. Or we can read it like this. He is the one who makes amends, who repairs 
who makes amends, sorry, makes amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing for you and for the whole world. Okay, yes, yeah, so I'm going to use the word expiation, okay, but I'm going, to, I'm going to open it up. He is the expiation. He is the act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing. He is the way for making amends for those things. He is the way for making amends for guilt. He is the way for, of making amends for wrongdoing for the whole world. Now we're able to bring in the account of if you so choose, he shall make you sons of God. Now the human choice comes in. See, my friend with the propitiation side, the, the universalist takes away the choice. And his argument goes, if, a, if, if we entered into sin because of one man, Adam, who we had no choice with, then, then we don't have a choice in coming into salvation in Jesus. It's just done for all of humanity. The choice, the free choice of you choosing to accept Jesus as Lord, Savior, Messiah, that he came, died, rose again, ascended to heaven, sits on the throne and will come again. What we understand the gospel to be, if we, if, if, if we don't choose, we don't need to choose that if we are, if we are universalist, if we understand that the, that God's already appeased with all of that. But if he is the one who makes amends for it, well, then there's a, still a choice that we have to take. Do I choose to take that one who makes amends? Do I choose to take, take hold of the one who repairs what was broken? 1 John 4, skip across a couple pages. Is this making sense to everyone? It's, it's, it sounds like it's a hard a sermon to get across, you know what I mean? A hard point. Um, chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for sin. Or we read it like this. So we read it like that. He is the one. So in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the appeasement for sin. The appeasement of a spirit or person for sin. Or we can read it expiation, which we read like this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the one who makes amends and reparation for our guilt and wrongdoing. Romans 3. Verse 21. Sorry, yeah, Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a appeasement, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Wow, so now there's a, conf there's a conflict within that, own, within that text itself. He, he has been put across as an appeasement by his blood. So that means that the wrath of God has been appeased. And then it says, to be received by faith. But, but, if, but I don't need to receive anything by faith if, if, the, if it's just been done on Jesus. I don't need to accept it by faith. It's done. So the universalist's teaching can stand true to that. 
Everyone's born again. It's done by Jesus. Or we can read it from the expiation point of view. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, this, um, let's go from verse 25, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood. So let's read it. In, whom God put forward as the one who makes amends and reparation for guilt or wrongdoing, which is to be received by faith. Okay? So the word in Greek, helasmos, which is where the Greeks translated from the Aramaic word, which is kaporet. So what they did is, the, uh, anyone heard of the Septuagint? You always see it in your little text. The Septuagint says such and such. Okay? So what the Septuagint is, for those who don't know, is the Septuagint is actually the Greek translation of the Torah. Because remember, the Torah wasn't written in Greek. The Torah was written in Aramaic and, and obviously Hebrew. And that would have been passed down verbally and was quite pictorial. So the, the initial writings of it were actually pictures of whatever it was that spoke about things. And then it became more written where it became Aramaic and it had letters to it. And then obviously um, Hebrew, which has letters to it. And then down the line, when, when, when the gospel started spreading, you know, when Jesus came and then he, you know, died, rose again, and they needed to proclaim the gospel, the, the main language of that time around, around Europe and around those nations that, that Rome um, and Greece had, had sort of taken charge of um, was to, to speak in Greek. Because Greek was a well-known language that could travel across many, many borders. So what they did is they, they needed to translate the, 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 the Old Testament, which we call the Old Testament, the Torah um, and the Tanaka, into uh, a well-known language. So, that, so that, that was translated into Greek, and that was called the Septuagint. So the Septuagint, the reason why I know that it's Caporet is because in the Greek word Caporet, it actually speaks about the mercy seat of God that was over the ark. And in the Septuagint, where they speak about the mercy seat, where, it's, where the Hebrew or the Aramaic word says kaporet, what, it's, what the Greek word is helasmos. So they've used the word helasmos when it speaks of that mercy seat of God, and then they've translated that back across into the New Testament and used the same word in the text where we now use the English term propitiation. And so we've got to go back to the Hebrew understanding of the fact that the, the, it was the ark, the place of God, where the seat of mercy was. And that that seat of mercy was the place where you would make amends for the wrongdoing. The blood of the sacrifice was placed on that mercy seat. And when it was placed on that mercy seat, God in his infinite Patience wasn't then enraged and then calm and then enraged and then calm and then enraged and then calm. And every time they sacrificed, God would calm down. Then he'd get angered and then he'd calm down. Yes, God required death and he required blood as part of his justice system. But it, that doesn't speak about the fact that God was impatient, patient, impatient, patient, and then appeased and not appeased and appeased and not appeased. It's, that, it, it doesn't speak about that. Although the justice system required death, it doesn't mean that God lost his patience. God was always patient with him. He says he was patient with him through all of that time so that he can reveal his glory now through Jesus. Do we get that? Is that making sense to anyone? So the mercy seat of God is where they get this word from. So the, the blood of Jesus or the blood of the sacrifices in those days placed upon that was to make amends for the people. It was not to appease God for the next year. 
It was to make amends for the people for the sins that they had committed that year because the sacrifices, as we see in Hebrew, of bulls and goats could not save. But they were actually just a constant reminder of the shortcomings of people. However, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, makes the full amends for us. The sin, the sin of the world being placed on Jesus, okay, the sin of the world being placed upon Jesus, then did not constitute God's wrath being poured out upon him. Jesus took upon himself the sin of mankind. In actual fact, the scripture says that he became sin. And then willingly, listen to this, friends, willingly, he went to the grave, taking that nature with him and leaving it there and then being raised back to life again. And then we've got people who will go, well, they qualify this by going, but on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they speak about that as being abandonment. Now, fair enough, if that's how you want to argue the point, you can. But it's well known through rabbinical teaching, Jesus himself doing it, that they would, if they quoted the first line of an Old Testament text, it meant that they were referring to that. Because remember, when they, when they quoted the Torah, they were talking to people who had been schooled since the age of three in the Torah. So let me, let me use this. Um, if I was to do an advert, and I wanted to um, I wanted to advertise Australia to people. I wanted to advertise and spark the hearts of Australian people. I, I, could, go, um, I could go something like this. Um, I can use the first line of the national anthem. Australians, oh, let us rejoice, or quote it. What would you start thinking? The rest of it. Or I could use a line which they'd often use. This is a teaching called Ramez where they'd, they'd speak a key line somewhere in the text that referred to it. Jesus does this. He goes, he goes, um, turns over the tables and he goes, this house will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So he's quoting an Old Testament text where it speaks about the Gentiles being able to come into the house of God and worship God alongside the Jews. But the Pharisees were keeping them out of the place of worship, but they'd allow them to come in and buy the sacrifices of doves and animals and then have them sacrificed for their sin, but they were never allowed to go beyond that into the place where worship of God took place. So Jesus doesn't have time to go and quote the whole of that Old Testament text from the Torah. So they use a, a teaching called Ramez where they speak about a line out of there that sparks the thoughts of people going, oh, actually, you know what? We've, we, we are guilty of not letting them come in and worship God. We've actually, we've actually sat, allowing them to sacrifice and make money off them, but we're not allowing them to actually enter into worship. So I would use a thing like this. I'll go, I'll go um, with golden soil and wealth for toil. And you'd go, advance Australia. And you start to get, you'd understand exactly what I'm talking about. This is what happens here. Jesus is actually quoting the first line of Psalm 22. And that whole Psalm speaks about, about the fact that, that, that 
David at the time was feeling so distanced from God because of all this plunder that was happening around him. And, and whenever, whenever Israel was plundered, it's because Israel had stepped away into worshiping foreign gods, as you heard me speak some time ago. So the whole text is about we are, we are under plunder. We are, um, we are being attacked by people. Our soil is not producing. Why? Because we've worshiped foreign gods. We've stepped out of line. But as you read through that psalm, it then starts to speak about redemption that's about to come to the people of Israel. Come on. So Jesus doesn't have time while he's hanging on a cross to go, um, you know, all the, all the 20-something verses of Psalm 22. So he uses a natural form of teaching, and he goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you not stepped in to help me? And then it goes on to speak about the nations around us are plundering us. These are the things that have been happening to us. This is what's going on. Hey, these people were living in Rome. Their whole land was plundered. They weren't living in freedom. They weren't living in it. But then you read, go, go read through Psalm 22. Do you want me to read through it? Let's go. Why not? We've got a bit of time. We've got 15 minutes. And it's, it's, it's scripture. So let's, let's honor the word and just see if we can get into it. And Psalm 22. Psalm 22. It's pretty gloomy. You know what I mean? It says, to the choir master, according to the, the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Now, David was a worshiper, and the only time David started to moan was when something went wrong. And something went wrong when, you know, he was either being chased by Saul, he allowed Absalom to step in and take, take reign, and, you know, other than that, David lived a pretty good life. The other time was when he fell with Bathsheba, and things didn't look well, and then repentance came, and we know the justification that came out of that. My God, my God, this is line number one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Listen to this. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. While he's talking... He, he, he's taking them back into, he's going, our fathers, we're living in, listen to this, we're living in Rome and they're plundering us. They're killing our people. They're taking from our land. They're taxing us. People, Jesus wasn't the first person to die on the cross. The roads were strewn with people on crosses. When you walked along them on the way to Jerusalem, anyone who had stood up against Rome was hanging on a cross on the side of the street with birds pecking away at their flesh. This is the reality of what was in the time. And, and Jesus is going, remember our fathers. Remember, this is the, who is our father? Abraham, how you redeemed him, how you gave him wealth, how you gave him land, how you distributed the promised land to us when we took it and we plundered all the nations that stood before us. Remember this. This is what he's taking them back to. See, as, as non-Jewish people, we don't see that. We just read the one line and we go, oh, you know, God abandoned Jesus at the cross. He turned his back away. Have you heard that teaching? I taught that garbage. You know, he looked at him and he, he could not look upon the sin on his son, so he turned his back away. But for all of, all of history, God was always looking upon the sin of human beings. But for that moment, on his son, his beloved one, he just had to turn away. Where do we get that from? Yet you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. In, our, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, and despised by the people. Wow, if David wasn't prophesying what was going on there. All who seek me, mock me. They make mouths at me. 
They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. From him, rescue him, for he delights in him. So that, that's what they mocked. Oh, if, if, remember, they said that. They said, yeah, if, if, God, if, he is God, if he is the son of God, let him come down from that cross. Let God deliver him. So Jesus is literally just quoting exactly that to bring it into that exact context. To go, hey, what David prophesied is happening right now. Yet, so yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I caught, sorry, on you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raven and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a, like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Oh my gosh. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothes they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of, of Israel. <clears throat> For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. Wow. On the cross, God couldn't look at the sin of his son on his son. So he turned his face away from him. Yet the text here says... <laughs> He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father has heard that cry. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I'll perform from those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. So eat and worship before him shall bow all who goes down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Wow. Where do we get the fact that God turned his back on his son at the cross? Because we read one line and we don't understand what it was like in those days. That is a victory. 
He speaks about, he is prophesying to Israel. He's prophesying what has happened, that you are plundered, you are broken, you are like do- the dogs are surrounding you, the lions are devouring you. However, the one who is pierced is about to bring all this redemption and it's going to change history where the nations will now worship you. They will come to you through, through, through Jesus. That is what he was saying when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was prophesying the whole of Psalm 22. He wasn't speaking about God turning his back on his own son. Friends, I want us to understand this, that God's wrath will come. It will come upon all, according to Romans, it will be poured out upon all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. However, in Christ Jesus, we have been redeemed from that. Jesus has come in and, not, and he hasn't taken us in his hands and covered us. He's actually taken us into himself. And he's, and he's taken that, whatever nature of sin was in you and me, he took that into that grave when he hung on that cross and he quoted that Psalm 22 by, by using the first line. He took that into the grave and the power of a loving, patient father pulled his son in the flesh out of that grave and with him he pulled you and me. And then that king who we are placed inside of was ascended to the throne where he sits glorified for all of eternity. Never, ever will his flesh see destruction again. And one day he will come again to this earth and with him the wrath of God will be poured out upon everything that is ungodly and unrighteous. And you and me, friends, whether if we are still on this planet, will be redeemed completely from that because we are no longer going to have that wrath touch us okay if we are already in the heavenly places what will happen is when he creates the new heaven and the new earth you and me will be given our new fleshly bodies the glorified bodies and we will rule and reign in christ on this earth in absolute perfection and the city We will have full access into the city. The garden has become the city and that city is the heavenly realm and we will have access into that throne room of God for all of eternity, never to change, yet our inheritance will always be as it was always meant to be, both earth connected to heaven. That, my friends, is the nature of God. Infinitely patient, waiting till that day that no one knows, not even the Son in the flesh knows, not even, only the Father knows when he will pour out his wrath. But right now, he still sits, as the scripture says, patiently waiting because he does not want one to perish. He didn't even want his own son to perish. Let me say this. Between the, tri- the Trinity, the Godhead, they discussed what was going to happen. And the son chose to come down for us. He chose to die for us. No one took it from him. And the father, sure as heck, did not pour out his wrath upon his son. He was right there with him. Right there with his son the whole time. And then redeemed him from the grave. Isn't that phenomenal? That's the God we serve. Friends, with that, there is no argument from a, 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 a universalist. From that, there is no one in the world who is unsaved who can say, well, how can a, a loving father pour out his wrath upon his own son and punish him you know, to the grave? Well, well, that's rubbish. He didn't. We punished him as human beings. We punished him. And the father collaborated with his son to come. For God so loved the world that he gave. The scripture doesn't say that he gave his one and only son to die on the cross. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever shall believe in him 
shall have eternal life, shall become the sons of God. Father, I thank you that you are just such a good God, a loving God, a patient God, a kind God. I thank you, Jesus, that you were obedient even to death on a cross on our behalf to take that sin into the grave. Thank you, Father, that you were willing to allow Jesus and to even send him to come here and to become our sin. I thank you that you pulled him from the grave and that with him you pulled us from the grave as well. I thank you that you have seated Jesus on the throne for all of eternity, where he rules and reigns. And we, as your sons and daughters, are ambassadors for that king. That we shall never taste death, even though our flesh may waste away. We shall never taste death, and we shall receive a new body, a glorified body, just like our, just like our, our Savior. And we shall live with you for all of eternity. Thank you, Father, that you are not impatient, that you're not a God like the gods of this world who needs to be appeased from time to time in order to calm down in your patience, that you are steadfast in your long-suffering and your patience and your endurance with us. I pray, that, Lord, that when we do teachings like this, that it would, it would penetrate through our minds, undo wrong thinking, and that it would redeem your nature and your character to all of us. So that we would have a right thinking about who you are. That we would know you in your nature and your character. And when we teach other people or talk to other people about you, we would bring forward the life-giving truth, Lord God. We would, there would be no doubts left. There would be no confusion left in the, in the presentation of the gospel of our King. We want all of mankind to know you for who you truly are. I ask that. In the name of the Messiah. Amen. Thank you for listening to my ramblings. It's sometimes hard to teach such chunky teachings. You know what I mean? It's, it's hard. You don't know if people are catching what you're saying or they're getting some warped view. And, you know, it's, my, my desire is really to bring people into a revelation of who God really is. That's, there's, no, there's nothing else that we need to do. That is the most major thing that we have to do. Other... There's other theologies that are little minor things, you know what I mean? But the major for me is God. It's who he is. Like, and I cannot stand when I hear a warped view of God presented by ministers of the word, where I see people sitting there, I'm like, wow, these people are confused by who God is. One moment they're telling he's, he's, he's this, and then the next moment he's that, and I just go, I can't reconcile that. We can reconcile God's justice and, and his love perfectly together. But when we use the wrong understanding, you, you can't reconcile a just God and a loving God. You can't. It's, it's difficult to do it. And I've watched people try to argue it and fall apart. But if we understand truth properly, we can, we can reconcile all of who God is perfectly into who he, into his nature and character without having to try and, and argue. And I mean, just simple readings of the text, friends, and a little bit of, a little bit of, extracurriculum study of the scriptures is going to help us a lot. Don't ever take what a man says, whether you hear it online, preached on a podcast, whether you read it in someone's book, or, or you, you see a little tweet. The worst thing is a tweet, a one-liner. By some big-name person, bang, a one-liner, and everyone's on this. Yeah, we got this guy. I want to look and see what this guy's on about, man, because I've heard someone quote something who's a big-name speaker, and it was just horrific. There is nothing in the scriptures that remotely stands close to that. 
And I've gone, how and everybody's jumping on him. I'm like, how can people jump onto what this guy's saying? It's garbage. It's not even, it's not even in, the, in the scriptures. It's actually anti-biblical. It's against the Bible. But because he's a big name, it's sentimental, it sounds good. There's fridge magnets made of it. It's on the, you know, guys are sticking on their mirrors. It's, on the, it's a bumper sticker on a car. And I'm going, wow, this is just not even truth. So I feel like we need to learn how to redeem that. And it's not going to come from just me preaching it or anyone else preaching it. It's really going to come from us as individuals. Like I've had to do in my life is to just diligently go a little bit beyond a surface reading or a surface listening. And, and dig a little bit deeper. Because I'm telling you, the truth is not that far below the surface. You'll find something a lot more deeper, and then I promise you, once you start that journey, you'll, you'll, get, you'll get excavators in, and the next minute you'll find yourself digging to China because you just want to find more and more and more truth about who God is. And the more you find, the more hungry you become and the more excited you become. And so you want to search more and search more. And that's the endless journey that we go on with our Father until we get taken to be with Him. Amen? Amen. Enjoy your week. Be blessed.